happy hour here on WVEW, 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us where you find your podcasts as well as on BCTV. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And on today's show, we're circling back to another thing that seems to not be done with us yet, and that is... COVID-19. I want to welcome regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. And back to the show, Anne N. Sosen, who is a policy fellow at the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences at Dartmouth College. Hey, Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Olga and Emily. Thanks for having me on the show today. Well, for those who may not be familiar with Anne's work, she uh, specializes in public health. You can find her writing on a number of news outlets, and you've been writing a lot about the pandemic lately. And um, one thing Emily and I were curious about, we wanted to talk to you about today, is, you know, Vermont has been touting, and rightfully so in many ways, its, its response to the pandemic and how it is handling it. And one of our shining moments is that we have a a very high vaccination rate. And yet we are also still seeing COVID infections rolling right along. And so I just wanted to just dive right in and start with what does the high vaccination rate in Vermont mean and not mean? Certainly that's a great question and one that we're all thinking a lot about right now. So Vermont has led the country um, in its vaccination efforts. Um, It's consistently had the highest rates of vaccination, um, including among young people. Um, But we're now in a new phase of the pandemic um, as we confront the Delta variant um, in Vermont. The Delta variant um, has really upended our thinking um, about where we are in the pandemic, um, as well as the tools that we need um, to control it. You know, our vaccination rates and the efforts that have gone into them are certainly laudable, um, but we really need to shift our thinking in terms of um, what policy tools we bring to bear on that. Um, We're seeing um, that many highly vaccinated countries um, have seen, have experienced large outbreaks. Um, We in the Northern New England states um, are also seeing, have also experienced a rapid rise in cases, hospitalizations, and now Um, we're seeing an increase in deaths. Um, And there are also secondary impacts um, that we're seeing in our schools, our businesses, um, and on other um, areas of life. And this means that we need to think um, about not only how do we continue to vaccinate, but what are some of the other um, policy tools that we can bring to bear um, on the management of the pandemic, especially until our kids um, become eligible for vaccination later this fall. And I would love to add just a framework to this conversation um, that Emily brought up before we went on air today. And that's um, how do we surround any of this public policy and our efforts around COVID with, with compassion and understanding and real information about what people are experiencing and what's leading to the decisions they're making, rather than going to the place, I think you called it uh, Vermont's um, way of doing things, which is shame and blame. Um, I, oh, I, God, blame, I don't know if I can repeat that. <laughs> 
Well, I blame our puritanical ancestors, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I just want to add that framework out there because I do I do think it's an important one um, when we talk about public health policy, just in general. Yeah. I, well, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, and I don't want to forget how you mentioned we have other tools we might want to be employing too. So I just didn't want to drop that thread. Yeah, let me perhaps start by talking about some of the other tools that we might um, employ and as well as some of the messaging that might accompany that. So um, one of the tools um, that is really powerful are mask policies and wrote recently with colleagues across the Northeast about data-driven mask um, policies and how um, Nevada's policy really offers a model for that. Um, and mask policies are a good accompaniment to high vaccination rates um, if linked um, to um, transmission metrics. Um, and so that's that's one approach that we might take. Um, but we also have to recognize um, that structural factors continue to drive transmission. And so we need more focus um, as transmission increases in our communities on our congregate settings, so our long term care facilities, our prisons, um, and also our schools and campuses. And I'd love to talk a little bit more um, following this about um, the situation in our schools. Um, in terms of messaging, I think it's really important um, that we employ messaging that's grounded in empathy and compassion right now. We are all incredibly fatigued with the pandemic and the response, the sacrifices we've been asked to make over 18 months, and none of us really expected um, to be entering the school year in the, this current situation. We thought that achieving 80% vaccination um, really um, would bring new freedoms and then we'd really be done in many ways or there would be you know, gradual resumption of normalcy um, in our lives. And here we are um, returning to a place where we may not have restrictions instituted by the state, but we're certainly altering our our behaviors at individual level um, in response to what we're seeing. And so as um, you know, we communicate about what we need to do, um, we, we have to acknowledge um, that everyone is fatigued um, and also that there's a lot of confusion about why we might be, why we're talking about masking, why we might be even talking about distancing and other, um, and other measures at this point in time. So, so why? Um, why, what is what Nevada's doing? What are they doing? Why does it work? Why is it better than what we're doing now? I, um, I know that for me and for a lot of people I've talked to, the fatigue combined with the fact that the emergency order ended and so many of our good policies went poof out the window when the emergency order ended um, means that sort of the structures that might buoy me to navigate that fatigue I have such a more limited capacity for, I think, day-to-day decision-making when I'm tired this way. And so um, I find that sometimes those structures are what sort of supports me in that difficult decision-making, whether those are sort of financial structures of being able to afford to stay home or social structures of some rules. Um, So I'm curious to hear more about what does work. Yeah, I I agree completely. We really need good policies in place right now and not just strong messaging. Um, 
you know, or individual guidance. Um, Nevada has a, an indoor mask policy um, that turns masking on across the state when transmission reaches substantial or high levels, and then turns masking off after it has decreased for 14 days. And so this policy offers a little bit of something for everyone. Um, it doesn't impose um, universal masking indefinitely. It's tied to data. Um, many of us like data-driven policies, um, but it it also um, gives um, it, it. It also it also um, it gives everyone a sense that things can change. They can improve you know, over time, um, and I think that's really important um, at this um, at this particular phase of the pandemic. You know, here in the state of Vermont, the emergency state of emergency has ended, um, but I think that there is perhaps a moment for us to ask the question of whether um, we we need to revisit that um, in order to put the policies in place um, to manage the pandemic. Many other states um, have instituted um, school mask mandates. Um, Rhode Island recently returned to a state of an emergency um, in order to do that. Um, and so the question is what, what, is, what is it that we need to do as a state um, to be able to confront um, the Delta variant um, and, it, and really to ensure um, that we keep um, our kids um, healthy and in school um, as the year begins. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's, no, go ahead, Emily. Um, the expiration of the emergency order and the fact that we haven't reinstated it has so many ripple effects that I think maybe people, not everyone's aware of, because there were policies in place um, thanks to the emergency order that really strictly um, controlled employer liability for employee um, infection and in doing so really protected employees' rights in the workplace. Um, there was the ability of, you know, the ability for mask mandates, which I think there's, you know, definitely some legal debate on whether or not Brattleboro should be able to institute its masking mandate. I personally and our town attorney person like believe that Brattleboro actually does have a right to institute a mask mandate. And that is not something that the governor has jurisdiction over, though it is something the health department does. Um, but the it's interesting sort of those flexibilities that we need um, and what the ability to sort of acknowledge in public policy that circumstances change and we need to be adaptive, I think is really um, confusing and scary to people. I think it's hard to say out loud that like this, we did everything we said we needed to do and this didn't end. And how do we sort of reconcile that as our community story? Because I think until we can reconcile that like, we did everything. We did such a good job and we all patted ourselves on the back and that was great and it was amazing and we're wonderful that we were able to do that. Um, and it wasn't enough and we have to do more. I don't, that's a really, um, it's a really hard thing to admit. And I sometimes feel like until we can admit that the governor's not going to be willing um, to put in place a new emergency order because it would mean letting go of that previous feeling of success. Um, and I don't, you know, one should not psychoanalyze their governor. It's probably not a useful thing to do. Um, but I think that's sort of the zeitgeist that we're sitting in on some level right now. 
Well, let me talk about this perhaps at individual and a policy level. I think many of us at individual level, you know, feel some sort of angst putting masks on because we don't know when they'll come off ever. You know, I think we we don't see clear endpoints or an end game at this point in time. And I think that's that's really discouraging to a lot of people. And that's why I think I'm a, one of the many reasons why I'm a proponent of data-driven policies where there are, you know, are end endpoints that are equitable and clear built in um, to them. But at policy level, I think we need to be talking about how we safeguard the gains that we've made from with vaccination um, using other policy tools. The Delta variant has really changed our thinking about how we manage the pandemic at that, this point in time. Um, and when we bring other policy tools to bear on what we're seeing, um, we're protecting the gains that we've made at a state. We're, may, we're ensuring that our kids can go back to school safely. We're um, limiting economic losses to our businesses. We're also protecting our health systems, which have been incredibly strained. Um, by um, this recent surge. Um, and so it's in that context that I would think about it, not um, in the sense that we have, you know, we've, we're faltering, we're stumbling. We are, we just need a different approach to um, managing this variant as well as other um, variants that may emerge in the future. I, I think what's so interesting, going back to that concept of messaging, one thing about the pandemic is, we we are talking about it as if it's the same pandemic and in a way it is because it is it's still the covid virus but we're in a new phase and and i'm not sure that we've we've gotten really good at talking about the different phases we might be going through and what ripple effects each of those phases may have both on a, a social emotional economic policy level yeah I, I would agree with that. And I think one thing that Vermont did very well early on was that it defined a coherent phased approach to managing the pandemic. The state um, quickly acted to suppress infections down to a low level. And then its reopening phase um, was very conservative um, and cautious. And as a result, Vermont avoided that resurgence of infections um, in the summer of 2020 that we saw across most of the US. Um, and then when cases spiked again last fall, the state again um, defined a really coherent approach um, to bringing transmission down. Um, here we are um, in a phase that we had hoped never to be in um, again, and we really need to state clearly what are the goals of this phase? What are we trying to do? Um, I would argue that our goal right now is um, to um, you know, bring transmission down with the goal of getting our kids vaccinated, hopefully in the next weeks or months. Um, and then also protecting, limiting um, the impacts on our health systems, um, you know, over, over the next few um, months. Um, and then we need to think, okay, if those are our goals, what are the policy tools that we need to bring to bear um, upon this? Um, you know, ma mask mandates are one, um, we might explore other options if the situation um, continues to get worse. But we always we want to look to the least restrictive measures um, generally, you know, impact closures of businesses and schools. Um, 
you know, curtailing health services because our health system um, becomes overrun. Those are not options. Those are not the first options that we want to um, that we want to explore um, and thinking about how do we how we respond right now. And for you, um, you know, last week, President Biden announced his his executive order to uh, mandate vac- vaccines, mainly in things that touched federal government, but not just. Um, how do you feel as a policy? Where do you see the strengths or perhaps the weaknesses of, of that? So I'm really happy to see a, a stronger national push on vaccination to look to workplaces um, as a site where we need to um, use mandates to increase vaccination. Um, but I think there are a couple of limitations of this approach. Um, one is that we most need to increase vaccination in older populations who may not be in the workplace. Um, the other is that this the mandates that the Biden administration putting into place, they apply um, to workplaces that are over 100 in employees. Um, and we know um, that um, many, particularly in our rural settings, are at workplaces um, that are significantly smaller, so they won't be touched. Um, they won't be touched by those mandates. We also know that there are significant income and educational disparities and vaccination rates. Um, and unless that's addressed um, with more systematically and comprehensively, um, we are unlikely to get vaccination rates um, to the highest um, to the highest level we, we can. I'm, I'm curious, you know, folks who may have come this far into the pandemic and not have been vaccinated, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but do you know of any policies or community practices even that might actually be acting as a barrier to folks who maybe want to get vaccinated, but either can't, don't know how, uh, don't have the resources, however that shakes out. Certainly, there are a lot of reasons why people don't get vaccinated and hesitancy is really only one part of the picture, although it's certainly what dominates um, the national discourse. Um, on vaccination. Um, many people can't get time off of work um, to get vaccinated. They lack childcare. Vaccination sites may be far away, um, particularly in rural settings. And if someone's not um, inherently motivated to get vaccinated, they you know, might not want to drive two hours each way twice. Um, to get vaccinated. And so one of the, you know, one of the ways to overcome that is to bring vaccination um, closer to communities, to workplaces, and to the places where people live, learn, and and play. Um, in other places, you know, um, communities have been flooded with misinformation um, about vaccines. Um, and so we need to address some of the informational gaps, um, that occur. And then many, um, are concerned about side effects, um, related to vaccines. And so ensuring that, um, have conversations with their primary care providers or trusted community messengers becomes really important. And so um, while, you know, mandates are a tool, it's really important for us to invest in communities um, and support those that are really well positioned um, to um, to, um, deliver messages that are meaningful um, in that setting. And I would say it's 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 going to be a slow process and not something that I expect to turn around overnight. So, oh, go ahead, Emily. Um, 
And I think that sort of there's time off to actually go get the vaccine, but there's also time off for recovery. I hear a lot of people really nervous about not like not the long-term side effects of the vaccine, but the very short-term side effects, which are real. I was quite sick for two days myself and was able to sort of work from home and figure that all out. But I, um, and so having that sort of sick leave for both the recovery time and the time that you're getting the vaccine is something that I haven't seen spelled out in many um, either business policies or public policies. I'm curious to hear from you. What I also hear from people is with the new variant, vaccines don't matter anyway, so why bother? And when I look at the Vermont, and as I'm trying personally to navigate what my behavior looks like in the world, I'm trying to figure out how at risk I am. And I have a really hard time when I look at the stats from Vermont to figure out like, oh, wow, there's all those people with a vaccine who are hospitalized. Like maybe, I don't know. Can you like unpack all that data, like unpack the dashboard for us so it makes sense? Let me try. Okay, Um, thanks. So when we're thinking about vaccine effectiveness, um, we need to be thinking about effectiveness against what? Um, We're thinking about um, vaccine effectiveness against infection, um, symptomatic illness, hospitalization, and death. And what really continues, uh, what really matters most is that vaccines prevent um, hospitalization and death. They continue to be highly effective at preventing hospitalization and death. Um, I, I think what we're all experiencing though is that vaccine, we're seeing a moderate reduction in protection against infection and um, symptomatic illness. So we're seeing what the Delta variant, um, that, all, that more people than we would have expected um, are getting infected and um, are at risk of transmitting to other people. So, and that becomes really important from a public health um, perspective, even if at um, individual level, it's not as meaningful from a clinical perspective. If you have um, cold-like illness um, after you get infected, that's not p- clinically meaningful. You'll recover fairly quickly, as most people do. Um, But where we get concerned is about your ability to transmit um, to unvaccinated people, including kids under 12, um, to immune compromised people or to um, those who might be at higher risk of illness. Um, And so it's not surprising that we are seeing more Vermonters um, who are vaccinated um, get infected uh, right now um, with the Delta variant. Um, you know, the question is, how do we protect those who are not yet eligible for vaccination or who can't benefit fully from its protective effects? Um, and that's where our messaging um, and policies really need to focus um, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, we have just about five minutes before we need to go to break. And I want to check with you, Emily, as a lawmaker who will be, you know, later this year or in, uh, in the new year going back to the state house. And right now you're doing all your hybrid meetings, um, managing those. What, based on what Anne has said, what's standing out for you right now? Um, what's been standing out for me since May is how incredibly difficult it is that we have a part-time legislature in the middle of a public health crisis. And so when we set our legislation in motion as sort of initial responses, whether that was the eviction moratorium or those workers' comp policies I talked about, um, 
or specific health insurance rules related to telemedicine. When we did all of those things, it was all with an eye towards sort of this single surge um, and that we would have policies for a peak, we would get on the other side and we would come out. I, you know, there's, I have memories of some of the debate that we were imagining we were talking about a couple of weeks, right? Um, way back, yeah. you know, two marches ago. Um, and so in the context that we have a governor who's unwilling to put another emergency order in place and a legislature that's not convened in order to take care of this, um, I, it all feels so rudderless. I don't have the boat metaphor. I don't know what the right part of the You're boat right, is. Rudderless. Rudderless. Great. Okay. There's, there's no one at the helm there. there I carried forward my boat metaphor. <laughs> um, and that's incredibly problematic because someone needs to be making these decisions. Someone. Um, mm -hmm. And what's frustrating in sort of the leadership vacuum that we have on some of this is that when towns or schools try to, we're getting pushback. Um, Mm, yeah, good point. Because, you know, say in Brattleboro, the particular context of Brattleboro, um, we have so many people coming over the border every single day here. We have like just a constant stream of day trippers, not even long-term vacationers. Um, and so we really have no sense of what the day-to-day -day vaccination rate or infection rate of our community is at all because right. we only keep data on the people who live here permanently. Right, um, really we are a, a tri-state area. Very much so. I would even say we're beyond a tri-state area. Um, and so allowing uh, either allowing us to be responsive to those changing circumstances in a dynamic way or um, an opportunity to create public policy that actually will protect all of us in a dynamic way, which is even better. Um, I think that's why we have state government um, would be really powerful because a lot of the federal sort of overarching protections become challenging in rural areas because of population density and certain things. We often fall outside of the purview of some of those things like the, the large business, you know, the mandates for large businesses barely apply in Vermont because we're mostly small businesses, just as an example. Um, and so that's what I am very stuck with. The other just like smaller thing that I think about a lot is I, um, the legislature in and of itself is a really powerful vector. Mm, and that's really, yeah. really scary because we come from all over the state and then we um, spend time in a very concentrated breathing on each other's space and then we separate out again. And so that, yeah. um, I've always been very conscious of that like vector status, even though it was just cold that I was bringing back and forth between Montpelier and Brattleboro. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would say that the legislature really illustrates sort of the distinct risks that we see in our rural settings. You know, many of our rural institutions or our anchor institutions draw on very large geographic areas. So our health systems um, are a good example um, of, of that. Our, you know, our colleges across the state are another example. And so policies that are defined on a hyper-local level often um, don't acknowledge how much population mobility or workforce mobility there is across the state. And it's, you know, one reason why having really good policy um, come out of the state level is important. That said, I think if we're going to take a local control approach, um, then municipalities need um, 
need the ability to, um, you know, institute measures um, themselves. And I have been dismayed, I think, by, you know, the simultaneous, you know, push towards local control, but lack of control at local level to um, institute the measures needed to um, manage the pandemic, even at town level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, we have to go to break, but thank you for that, Anne, because I think you touched on, in general, Vermont can be a little split. It, it wants to be a Dillon real estate and it wants local control kind of at the same time. And um, it gets itself into fits over that. We have to hear from some underwriters. So stay tuned. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return in a moment. of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. And Emily, what do we need to remind our listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not the station or their employers or their neighbors and friends, but just of the people who are here speaking with you and to you and to each other. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. For folks who are just joining us, I'm your host, Olga Peters. You just heard from representative and regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. And we are speaking with Anne N. Sosen, who is a policy fellow at the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences at Dartmouth College. Thank you, Anne, for being here today. Thank you, Olga and Emily. So continuing our conversation, you know, touching in on the pandemic and, and where Vermont is right now in this new new phase of the pandemic, um, you know, one thing we've, we've also d- um, experienced a lot of, at least most of us, uh, with this pandemic is the question around testing. You know, some, some places even have policies around, like when I, when I take my dad to Dartmouth uh, Hospital uh, Medical Center, have you had a negative COVID test in the last 10 days? That is one of the questions we, that we get asked. So for you, um, what are your thoughts on testing, um, access, efficacy, good policy around it? Like, let's dive into that. Where, where are your thoughts on, on testing? So testing is a really large landscape, and I think we had all hoped we'd be much further along than we are 18 months into the pandemic. Um, We're seeing a lot of challenges at state level around testing um, right now, and we need to think about what are the different types of testing um, that we need to deploy across a range of settings. So not only um, PCR testing, which many are familiar with, um, many of us have been to the state's testing sites, um, but what are the forms of testing that we use um, in our health systems, in our workplaces, in our schools um, as public health tools and not simply as clinical tools? Um, so, you know, right now we're thinking a lot about surveillance testing or testing in our school settings and how do we use this as a tool um, to control transmission. Um, we're also thinking about how do we do more testing in our workplaces. And this is something that's really lagged um, both at national and state level in our response. So I have a friend who spent some of the pandemic in London, um, and she said 
Um, absolutely, they have their own problematic responses to this situation. But one thing that she said, and that I've heard from other folks outside the US, is that there is just this free flowing packages of the instant tests that people can use. Um, that they're just like handed out like condoms at a Planned Parenthood, and you can just get one anytime you want one, and everyone has one in their bag. So, curious to like, I know that they're not as accurate, but they, it seems better than like having to wait five days sometimes. And so like they're useful for different times and different places. And will you tell us about all that? Yeah, and I, I wanna preface what I'm going to say um, with uh, that I'm not a testing expert. There are some people who really specialize in testing. That's not me, um, but let's just talk a little bit about rapid testing and it's um, utility. So rapid testing is incredibly um, helpful at letting you know when someone's infectious. Um, it is um, less useful as telling you, um, less useful than PCR testing and telling you if someone has any virus in them. And But why is it important to know if someone's infectious? If they're going into a workplace or a school or a health system and you know that they're infectious, then you can make a decision at the moment about what, um, you know, not to let them into that place. And we can use rapid testing on a really frequent interval um, to stop outbreaks. When we are using PCR testing, what we're seeing often is that there's 24, 48, or even 72 hour turnaround, um, by which point someone may have been transmitting to other people um, across a range of community settings um, without even knowing um, that they um, were positive. Um, so rapid testing um, is a tool that we've really not deployed nearly enough, um, in part out of concern for the fact that it's um, it's less sensitive um, than PCR testing. Thank you. Anne. So I, um, after I come back from joint meetings in Montpelier, where I wear a mask and I don't eat in, inside in restaurants and I do all kinds of things, but it's definitely a much higher risk situation than my day-to-day -day life down here. And so when I get back, I, what I tend to do is like pretty much isolate for a few days um, when I get back, but then I don't go get tested after that. It's just like this arbitrary thing I've made up to make my risk feel better. And if I could do rapid tests um, in a regular, like if I could, what I see is that there's, you know, workplaces that sometimes are doing surveillance testing or school, some schools that are doing surveillance testing. But if I could do my own surveillance testing on myself and then also occasionally get the stronger test, I think that I would be better, I would behave at the same level of risk, but I think my risk to other people would be much lower. Exactly. It's giving you actionable information um, yeah. that you can use. And if you're using rapid testing on a a daily interval after you've been exposed or you've been in a higher risk um, setting, you have information that you can use to make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. If you have a negative test in the morning, you may have to feel more confident about going into a community setting, a workplace, um, you know, or another place. The, and that, you know, that becomes really important um, at community level when we have, you know, a lot of people that are using rapid tests. Mm -hmm. Is, are there other reasons, um, you know, you mentioned, Anne, that, that some folks worry that the rapid tests aren't as sensitive, um, but are there reasons that we're not, as Emily said, handing them out like, like condoms at Planned Parenthood? 
you know, I'd love to see them handed out. And there have been many that have advocated for the widespread adoption of universal testing. Michael Mina um, at Harvard is, you know, well known for his work on this front. And he's been saying we need to th- re- really shift our the paradigm on testing and move towards this. Um, but we don't, um, we haven't been manufacturing them at the scale that we need um, to have them. And there are also some regulatory barriers um, to testing. Um, or to, 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 um, to testing, but we really need to think about testing as a public health tool and not simply as a clinical tool. Yes. Yeah. Can yeah. you, that makes sense to me when you say it, but can you explain a little bit more the difference between using something as a public health tool versus using something as a clinical tool? We're using it as a public health tool. We're using it to control transmission or to prevent outbreaks at community setting. A uh, community level, we are not simply using it for for to make clinical diagnoses um, at individual level. And so, if we want to prevent outbreaks in our schools um, or in our businesses, knowing um, the point at which um, individuals coming in are infectious, um, it becomes a really really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, are there policies around testing that you? Um, and I know it's your, not your specialty, Anne. But are there policies around testing that you wish um, Vermont or any of the New England states, I know that's where you focus your, your studies, um, you would like to see implemented? So again, I'm not a testing expert, but I'd really love to see Vermont scale up its testing infrastructure right now. I know that a lot of people are struggling um, to get access to testing. This is not where we should be right now, and we should not be scaling back testing. Um, we need to be expanding um, testing sites, um, the types of testing that we're doing right now, if you want to get um, control um, of this um, particular uh, of this particular surge. Um, so that's one thing. And I'd really like to see much more support for um, facility-based testing. So testing at schools, testing at businesses. I, I don't think um, they have, uh, that many places have um, the support that they need to do this well. Mm-hmm. Emily, any other thoughts on testing? No, I mean, no, it's, it seems so straightforward and that it would be so accessible if it could be accessible. Um, and when, you know, here in Brattleboro, which is, um, I think generally a best case scenario for something like this, we have very ready access to a fairly large public health institution. You know, we can, the hospital's right there. And so when they had testing for half a day every day, it was fairly accessible. I think in some more concentrated places, even that became sort of backlogged. Um, and in less concentrated places, they you have to drive a long way to get to something like the hospital. But here in Brattleboro, when it was available every day for half the day or all day, that was, it really worked. It was really like very accessible. And that seems like a baseline. And there are so many other baseline bare minimums that we were operating under six months ago that seems to have disappeared. So there was the testing being readily, almost readily available for sort of, you know, more urban settings. Um, There was our eviction moratorium. There was folks, you know, housed in motels rather than congregate shelters. Um, There was well, we never really did a good job with the incarcerated population at all, and we're still not. Um, but we had much sort of stricter protocols at schools. You know, I had to work through um, when during the first surge, 
I worked with youth services. And so I was subject to all of those AOE guidance documents and I read through them all and they were detailed. And so in an environment where I'm not a public health specialist and I don't know what to do and I'm managing a team of folks with youth, I was able to go through and be like, we are going to follow these protocols and then we will be doing the best we can in this situation. And I can't imagine how difficult it must be to operate in a universe where the guidance document is one page long. I mean, it's just like, it is unfathomable to me because even with those 50 pages of guidance documents, there were still some times when I had questions about the right thing to do, but at least I could both like, you know, call the public health nurse, look to the guidance document. And when I was arguing with my team about the right thing to do or arguing with youth about the right thing to do, I had an outside document to say, I'm not making this up to make your life hard. This is what the government's saying to do. And I think that's one of the biggest tools for schools and for managers and to like exit this out of a political environment um, is to have some really clear universal guidance so that people aren't, don't have to take individual responsibility for this. Mm-hmm. I saw Anne like nodding yeah. very, <laughs> very much during that. Yes, I agree completely with you. Um, I think as you already know, um, last year Vermont had 41 page guidance in place. Um, it was Um, It really laid out the evidence um, that we had at the time. Um, It described um, layered mitigation approach, and it provided detailed guidance on implementing it in a school setting. Um, This year, um, coming into the school year with a variant that's twice as transmissible as a wild-type virus, um, the school issued a 1.5-page memo um, that had very limited information, really didn't reflect the latest evidence um, on um, the Delta variant, um, and um, really didn't set forth much um, in terms of information and strategies for school. Those guidance talked um, about masking, um, but it wasn't aligned um, with the CDC and American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations. Um, There was no mention of the layer mitigation strategies that we widely agree are essential um, to controlling um, this virus in a um, in a school setting, and so you know I've watched school leaders across the state really struggle um, for lack of information as well as lack of political support to um, make these decisions um, in their own communities, even um, in um, the best resourced um, uh, areas of the state, school leaders are really um, facing challenges um, and putting um, robust mitigation strategies in place and then communicating um, them to their school communities. And then in the worst resourced or some of the most challenging schools in the state, um, what we're seeing is kids constitute like constitutional right to an education um, not being met because those political challenges are not surmountable. Um, And so we have districts that don't have mask mandates and kids that can't attend school because of health challenges, because there is no mask mandate in that school. And so it's, um, there's on one hand, we're making people's who have had the hardest work life of their entire lives even harder because we don't have a statewide solution, um, which is terrible. And then on the other end, um, 
we have situations where we have a lot of kids being put in harm's way who don't need to be. Exactly. This is a problem at multiple levels. Um, school leaders um, are really an incredibly difficult situation. And to add to their challenges, um, our, many of our state systems are not working as well as they should. Um, testing will not be up until October at earliest. Um, and many districts are not don't have the capacity um, to put testing in place. Um, contact tracing um, is broken in many ways across the state. Schools are waiting days um, to get a response um, when they have cases, even though they are doing their own contact tracing. Um, and this is something that's going to exacerbate the educational and health inequities that we see across the state of Vermont um, if left unaddressed. Um, and so if we had good mandates coming from state level, um, as well as the systems that we need, um, it would be an enormous um, resource for schools. So we would- I, Can I just, just add sort of one detail? Um, I just wanna sort of name that I know that the folks at the Department of Health who are doing the contact tracing have also had the hardest work life, work year of their entire lives, right? And a lot of the folks who are doing that were moved from other divisions um, that, and are, have now been sent back to their original jobs. And so I don't want this like desperate cry for these programs to work well, to um, be perceived or heard as a misunderstanding of how hard it is to actually do this well. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it and that we aren't like, Full, capable humans in relationship and in government with each other and that we can we are capable the pandemic proved that we're capable of finding the resources we need to get jobs done when we do it's that sustaining is even harder i would agree with you um the Vermont, the Vermont Department of Health employees have done just a phenomenal job throughout the pandemic at this work. Um, and you know, I experienced contact tracing myself um, and was really impressed by how, how efficient the system was um, and ran. But one thing that has changed recently that not all Vermonters are aware of is the contact tracing has been outsourced. So it's not being, a lot of it is not being done in-house right now. Um, it's being done by a private um, company out of state. And so some of the problems may um, relate to that and may not be um, a challenge at um, the Vermont, within, within the Department of Health. So I'm so sorry to do this to both of you and to any listeners who this is very clear for, but I admit as someone who doesn't have children, there are sometimes the school system just is a black box to me. <laughs> and, and so as you were talking, it just really hit me that I, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I don't really understand why after doing a lot of things so well, with the pandemic, now that we've gotten to the schools, it seems we're not responding as strong as we did last year. Um, and I'm just confused, like, is it just pandemic fatigue or are we trying to launch new systems that weren't ready? Like I'm, or like, I'm confused. Like why, why is that happening? I'm it's, it's probably obvious to everyone, but it's not obvious to me. No, it's not. We had, so, I mean, Curious to hear more of the details from Anne, but we, the majority of our schools had in-person learning last year for That's some portion of the year. year. And kids wore masks in schools 
and they were spaced apart in schools. Um, we were supposed to be doing a huge amount of work on air filtration systems in our school and air circulation systems in our school. And some of that happened. And we had contact tracing um, that worked in the schools last year. Yeah, and then but- this year in the lead up through the summer, um, everything, it was sort of announced early in the summer that everything would change, but then how the changes would happen um, were not really communicated until very close to the beginning of the school year. And what have I, what did I miss in that story I told? No, I would agree. And I really don't understand why we're at this point in our um, second year um, of, you know, operating schools during the pandemic. I, th- I think that we really need to build on some of the lessons from last year rather than retreat from them. And it's it just has never been clear why we set aside the practices um, and lessons that were so critical. Um, to our success last year. It would be, you know, we could be a model, I think, for the rest of the U.S. right now, as we were last year, saying here's how we open schools, um, you know, as the Delta variant surges across the country. And that's that's not the approach I see the administration taking. Okay. So good. Thank you. I, I do feel better. Like, even though I, I don't fully understand it, at least I don't feel so bad that I'm confused. <laughs> no, I mean... I think what's sort of interesting is that there was universal masking in schools for the most part last year. Um, Certainly like the rules were enforced, not as well in some districts and in other districts, the same way all kinds of other rules aren't enforced as well in some districts, you know, special ed works better in some districts and other districts and like racism is more rampant in some districts and other districts. Um, We have, we have local control and that means a lot, but um, What's interesting is that it really, it seemed that everyone, there was a short period of time where everyone thought it was going to be sort of over mm-hmm. this next, that this school year, everything was going to start fresh and we would be done. And this would be the time that all the students would just sort of recover and heal and be amongst each other. And when the Delta surge happened, it's as if that information did not permeate at the administration when they were thinking about sort of what the plans would be. It's that, I, what do you I, think I, about that theory, Anne? Yeah, I would agree with the assess, that assessment. And I think we're, there's some things we're, that should not be a point of debate. You know, whether or not we adopt the minimum guidance from the CDC and American Academy of Pediatrics is not something that should be a point of debate. Um, that's a, you know, that's a minimum that's set forth across the country. And, you know, that should be that should be our starting point, not something um, that gets subject to weeks of um, public debate. And so I have been concerned that we, um, you know, that we're retreating uh, away from not only the recommendations that are in place, but, uh, you know, our sort of evidence based approach um, to managing the pandemic at community and in school level. Mm-hmm. So, Anne. As you are studying this pandemic and as it has gone through its many phases, what is it teaching you as someone who who does this for a living? I, I, you know, I think we're all learning as we go along. But one thing that um, it, it really highlights, or I, I guess there are a couple of things that it highlights. One is the importance of having really um, good policies in place that are adaptive 
um, to rapidly changing conditions. The scientific evidence is evolving very quickly, but when we have good policy frameworks um, that are agile and adaptable to that, um, then we're able to manage that over time. And I know that we've talked about this um, before, but it also just underscores or highlights how important it is for us to address the underlying inequities um, that continue to drive transmission and disparities in our communities. Um, we in early on had housing supports um, and other supports for our vulnerable populations in place. Um, people are, you know, who are housing insecure or experiencing homeless continue to be incredibly vulnerable right now. And so letting up on those supports um, you know, now during the Delta surge or in the future, um, really doesn't make sense. We need to think about what are, how do we transition um, to, uh, um, you know, as we, as we look forward. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Um, Emily, has this conversation brought anything to the surface for you? Um. I'm having, um, I mean, I'm having a week of feeling a little bit lost and a little bit like part of it is I think there's like a hurricane system that has like a high pressure thing happening over my head right now. And part of it is like the world, the whole world feels like that. Um, and so I'm just really aware of like how tired I am, how tired Anne is, how tired you are, Olga and how we still need to keep on going. Um, and so I'm really like hunting for those tools that are going to sustain me to be a capable, thoughtful, compassionate decision maker um, as I continue to operate in like this really much higher stress environment. And so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you I identified any, any tools? Either of you, you know, one thing that I would I would say is that I'd like to see us get back to sort of the village versus virus mentality that we documented early in the response. You know, we came together as a state and as communities to respond to this, and now we're deba debating masks and very narrow interventions. And I think we would be better off if we had a much more community centric response um, to. Um, the challenges that we're facing now. I think there's been an erosion of some of the goodwill um, and solidarity that have been essential to our success as a state. So my hope would be, um, you know, that we draw upon that once again um, is um, over the next few months. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Much appreciated. Um, we are just about out of time. Emily, anything you wanted to add before we go? No, I, this has been an incredible conversation. And I think um, similar to how we need to have a constantly evolving response to the pandemic, I think it's really helpful on the happy hour to continue to have Anne in regularly as the pandemic evolves. So thank you so much, Anne, for spending this time with us. Thanks so much, Emily and Olga. Thank you. Well, before you go, Anne, we just want to toast um, to, I want to toast just to the work of you and your colleagues as well as to Emily and your colleagues, as everyone is trying to navigate um, these, you know, how do we adapt our systems and how do we adapt our communities uh, to something like a pandemic? And, and uh, I just wanna toast everyone who is doing that hard work. So thank you.
Cheers. As always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Brattleboro Community Television, also known as BCTV, our Facebook page, and wherever you find your podcasts. Emily, where can folks find you if they have questions? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org, and there you will find all of my email accounts, my social media accounts, my phone number, and if I have any upcoming public events, I do my best to post those there as well. Thank you. Hey, everybody, have a great weekend.